living water from John chapter 4 verses 1 to 30. This morning we arrive at another very well-known story from the Gospel of John in chapter 4. In John 3, in John 3, Jesus mainly ministers to one person, the religious man called Nicodemus. In John chapter 4, he will minister to a number of people, the Samaritan woman, his disciples, the later on the, the village people of, the, of Sikha, uh, and uh, then he will minister to a nobleman and his household. All of these accounts have something in common and the thread is that they all point towards faith in Jesus Christ. All of them follow John's real purpose in his gospel which is bringing his readers to understand the implications not only of who Jesus is but what it is to actually be surrendered to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. Now the story of Jesus and the woman at the well should be very familiar to most of us here. Now the first four verses of this chapter start off with a follow-on from chapter 3 and uh, really they're a follow-up from that because Jesus is, is drawing attention of the Pharisees, the religious authorities. And now, because it's not yet his time, Jesus wants to move out of the limelight because the pressure was starting to, the things were starting to get a little hot. So he moves away and he starts to move uh, north again. Now this is the, the longest recorded conversation that anyone ever had with Jesus as we have it recorded in the Gospels, including his disciples. In the heat of the day, Jesus comes to a well. It wasn't just any well. It was called Jacob's well. It was, of course, named after the patriarch that we spent a lot of time looking at last year. This well was dug in a rock, some 2,000 years before. The well was just outside the village of Sikar, situated in Samaritan territory. We didn't get to Jacob's well in our, earlier this year in, our, in the visit to, to Israel. It is actually, nowadays it is situated in a monastery, in a temple within the monastery as everything else is in the Holy Land, really. Um, And uh, it's not only that, it is in the West Bank, you know what that's about, under Palestinian authority. So it was was going to be very difficult for us to get there. So you have to, I suppose, get through all these walls if you want to go and see this well today. Which brings me to think of the walls between this woman and Jesus. There is a religious wall 
There is a gender wall, a racial wall and a moral wall. Yet our Lord found a way to break down all of them one by one. He found her and then she found him. So let's start to unpack this marvellous encounter and see what treasures the Lord has for us. The First of all, the encounter, verses 4 to 8. Now he had gone through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of the ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Because his disciples had gone to town to buy some food. Now the easiest thing, quickest way to get to Galilee up north from Judea in the south was to go the, the, best, the, the, the quickest way between two points is a straight line. So you go straight north through Samaria. But pious Jews had an alternative route. It was a little bit longer and it involved crossing the Jordan, crossing on the other side on the Jordan and uh, into the Transjordan area called, in those days called the region of Perea. Walk along the, on the other side of the Jordan until you get north and then Once you get there, you cross over the Jordan again. So if we are talking about a geographical necessity, he didn't really have to cross Samaria. Unless, of course, there was another reason altogether. Now, the Jews and the the Samaritans uh, disliked each other from way back. In the year year 722 BC, the Assyrians captured the northern kingdom, which which were the ten tribes which had separated from the south, and their capital was called Samaria. They took the northern ten tribes into captivity and brought in Gentiles from other areas that they had already conquered before to settle in that same region. The goal of conquering kingdoms like that was to dilute any possible rebellion, dilute the power and dilute the purity of who they were. The Jewish people were scattered, but those who stayed had to intermarry. They were intermarried. They were forced into marriage with Persians and other people who had been conquered. As a result, these people who were part of the tribes, originally the tribes of Israel, now they could no longer prove their genealogy. More than that, they developed their own religion, which was partly based on pagan ideas and partly based on Judaism. It was a a real mixture. And it is for this reason that the Jews 
look down on the Samaritans. They look down on them as racial, religious, half-breed heretics, really. That's the way they would have described them. So again, we come to the question, why did Jesus have to cross Samaria? Short answer, because he intended to meet this woman. Nothing happens by chance in this story. He knew she would be coming to the well at precisely the moment he was sitting there and weary from the journey. At precisely the moment when his disciples would be gone. The woman isn't looking for Jesus, but Jesus is very obviously looking for her. She came to the well in the middle of the day. This was unusual because women normally came together to the well in the morning or in the evening, particularly if they had to walk a certain distance. It was easier with carrying all that water. There was no running water in their houses. There were no taps or showers or stuff that you just turn on. You people who have grown up in other areas know exactly what I'm talking about. There is just usually one well in the village or you have to walk down to the river, wherever it is, and then carry the jars back to the village, to the home. Water is very precious. And it also, this journey to the well became a social event. You see this as, uh, as we were travelling through Africa in a truck, we, we saw it quite often that there was a, a bunch of women. They'd be walking along the side of the road somewhere to the village, to the market, uh, to sell something, to buy something. They'd be walking along as a group. Very rarely you see people walking Alone. So it became a social event, this, this gathering of water. Maybe the fact that she comes alone may mean that her reputation was well known to the villagers and therefore she was ostracised by the other women in Sakaar. Yeah, that is a possibility, but if this was the case, they would not have listened to her when later on she tells them about the person she just met. So I think it was actually a divine appointment that she had to be there alone. Maybe she ran out of water. Maybe God had a lot more to do with it than we give him credit for. For you see... When it comes to deep personal conversations, which is what Jesus wanted to have with this woman, it would have been very hard to have a deep personal, a deep and meaningful, if there was a group of women there and Jesus is talk, trying to talk to one person, isn't it? It's much easier to be one-on-one. This was a personal conversation that Jesus wanted to have with this woman. Reaching people for Christ 
takes many different ways and many different forms and many different settings. And it is not always comfortable and many times difficult because of the barriers and walls that people pull up when you're trying to address spiritual matters. But you see, you have to go where people are if you want to reach them at all. It all begins with a simple question from Jesus. Will you give me a drink? Will you give me a drink? And then in the second point is the offer from verses 9 to 15. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews simply do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman asked, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. How can you get this living water? The surprises start to happen for this woman and they keep happening as the conversation progresses. First, a Jew speaking to a Samaritan. Second, an unusual man speaking to a woman in public. Third, a Jew willing to drink from a Samaritan's cup. It's just one thing after the other. I think you you would have picked up by now that the way that the Jews tried to keep holy was to stay away from certain things and stay away from certain people. That's the easiest way that we can define Judaism. Rabbis taught that it was a sin to touch a utensil that a Samaritan had touched. So you can imagine what they thought about the actual Samaritan. Jesus changed things around. For Jesus, it wasn't something that we touch or something that we, someone who we hung around with. Sin is actually inside each of our hearts. You see, it's much easier if if you tell me something to do I just won't do that and I won't hang around with that and hang around with those people. I won't, that, that's what religious life, for, for, for most people, that's how you define religion. It's to know this, know that. But Jesus gets personal and the sin inside the heart is much harder to deal with. As long as sin is out there, I can deal with it. Just don't do it. But if it's in here, I'm forced to deal with it. And the only solution is a saviour. Nothing else can cleanse you. 
And, they, and there they are. Think about it. There they are at a well with still waters. The way that wells work is that you start digging, 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 and hopefully there's a, there's, there's a spring underneath that, that just flows and underneath and with the pressure of the ground and everything bearing on it, then you open a hole and, 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 and that, that water starts to rise. And hopefully you, you hit a, some underground spring or something that, so that the water continually flows. And it's quite an art to finding where, the, where to dig a, dig a well. You don't want to spend all that time digging a well and then find that it's dry. It's a waste of time, a lot of effort, danger and all of that. This is why wells were very precious, very valuable. There they are at the well, and when Jesus offers her living water, he is actually being deliberately ambiguous because the phrase could also mean running water. But this running water is not a liquid essential for all living organisms. It is a person who runs the whole show. He's talking about running water and there they are in a well with still waters. And this is why Jesus returns again and again to this central issue. Do you know who I am? Now in verse 10, Jesus says, you would, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This is the simplicity of salvation, my friends. Salvation is asking God to save you and receiving by faith salvation in return. Salvation is not for the doing. It is yours for the asking. To Nicodemus, to Nicodemus, Jesus spoke of water and the Spirit as a necessity for new birth. Here we find that the living water is Jesus himself. In verse 15, the woman says, give me this water. She didn't, obviously, she didn't understand what he meant, but she wanted what he had. Now, there are enormous theological implications behind this statement. But God has made it so simple that a child can safely wade in it, in these waters. And yet many a theologian have actually drowned in its depth. actually lost their faith. They study the scriptures and all of this and by the end of it and all of that, they've actually become unbelievers. It's amazing, isn't it? Thank God that a lot of them haven't, haven't drowned. Thirdly, we move to the examination, verses 16 to 18. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say, 
I have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you are now with uh, is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. If Jesus was around today and if Jesus had uttered these words today and news got out what Jesus had said to the media, to the PC brigade, to the news outlets and all of that, he would have been so easily accused of harassment. At the very least of gross insensitivity toward an innocent female victim who has obviously been unlucky in love. Some would say, why, 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 why bring up anything about her past? It's none of your business, Jesus. So, I'm sure his instruction to call her husband must have been must have made her very uncomfortable. Her current status, you see, is it's complicated. You heard that one? And and not wanting to go into details, she simply replies, I have no husband. Obviously trying to hide the truth. She's trying to go back behind the wall. And walls, you see, sometimes make us actually comfortable. We're happy where we are, thank you very much. But Jesus has a lot to say about that and he would have nothing of this as he proceeds to reveal the rest of this story. She's been married five times and the man she's with now is not even her husband. How could a woman in that day have had five husbands? No, she wasn't a movie star. She wasn't selling perfume like Elizabeth Taylor. Even today, that would be very unusual, would it not? Did they all die? Unlikely. Had she been divorced five times, probably. And now she's in a de facto relationship with a man outside of marriage. I sort of picture this woman, Samaritan woman, like a, like a patient in front of the doctor. You're going for the second visit to the doctor after you've had your examinations and the report comes to the doctor and it's not good news. He's just examined the x-rays and he has news for you that you don't want to hear. Deep inside, you sort of know already that this doesn't look good. It's not good news. But now you have the actual confirmation. And you just didn't want that confirmation. You, you were hoping against all hope that it, it, it just won't be true. 
And just following the, the, the whole medical analogy, this is the way that Jesus described his mission in Mark chapter 2, verse 17. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Here, the divine surgeon has to tell her what her condition is. So how do you want the the doctor to break the news to you when it's bad news? How do you want him to do it? Maybe you've been in this situation. I know some of you have. But the truth is painful. And there is no easy way to say it. Stand in the position of the doctor who might have had to deliver bad news to maybe two or three people already that day and speaking to, you know, I have some relatives who are doctors and and they never find it easy as well. They're human beings. They have family. They've got children. They've got all, they know it. They know what it's like. So if it's painful to give it, it is so much more painful to receive it. You see, most of these men who she had relations with, who she was married to in her life, I'm sure they would have told her the things that this woman wanted to hear just so they could be in some temporary relationship with her and and take advantage of her and then once they've used her they would abandon her and move on to the next relationship. These men would have told her nice things. Oh, you're so beautiful. I've never met anyone like you. You are the person I've been looking for in my whole life. Ooh, you know. And here was a man finally telling her the truth and it was the most loving thing she had heard, she was hearing all of her life. You see, without a conviction of sin, there can be no conversion. Without a conviction of sin, there can be no conversion. We are not, first and foremost, victims of sin. We actually enjoy sin. The problem is not out there. It isn't. It isn't uh, money. The problem is not health, it's not the system, it's not failed relationships, it's not the state of the economy. The problem is in here, it's called sin. And until you accept this, you will never see your need for a saviour. Because you will always see yourself as simply a victim and everybody's after, you know, out to get you. 
And we've somehow been, been raised to believe that if you only find the right man or the right woman, you'll be happy. So people jump from one relationship to another. Let me say, let me repeat what I've said before. If you are unhappy, if you are unhappy single, you will be unhappy married. No human relationship can satisfy our needs. No human relationship can make you complete. We are spiritual beings made for our relationship with God and from God all the other relationships follow. But he must come first in everything. In everything. Fourthly, we look at the conversion, verses 19 to 26. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where you must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when we will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. This woman finds herself in a pickle. This is not the way the conversation would have, should have gone, you're probably thinking. So quick, let's change the topic. By, move, by moving from relationships, which I've not been very successful at, from relationships to religion. And remember, it's interesting, isn't it, that with Nicodemus, Jesus moved him from religion to a relationship. The other way. And because he knows her past, she assumes that he must be a religious prophet. So she goes and proceeds to engage with him on religious topic, on a theological, on a very well-known theological debate between the Jews and the Samaritans. And in that day, the Jews worshipped in Jerusalem, and the Samaritans worship on Mount Gerizim. So she wants to know which mountain is the right one to worship on. Jesus does not directly answer her question. He doesn't bother debating with her. He simply tells her that a time is coming and it's important when he says, and it's actually here, it's actually here, right now. A a time is coming when geography won't matter. What God really wants are people who worship him in spirit and truth. Religious activity, you see, doesn't really count. True worship is not about where or how or even when. 
Understand that. True worship is not about where or how or when. It's about facing the truth of who we are, but more importantly, who God is. Acceptable worship must be based on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and offered to him from a humble heart of faith. Okay, she's lost that argument. She's got one more arrow in her quiver. The religious matter of the Messiah. Both Jews and Samaritans believed in a coming Messiah. And and she is now trying to hide her ignorance by basically repeating the another well-known mantra, this stuff is too deep for me. I just don't get it, eh? But when the Messiah comes, he'll explain it one day. Until then, I don't want to think too much about it, you know? That's just the way I am, eh? It's too complicated. Have you had discussions with people like that? You believe what you want to believe, I'll believe, and you know, one day we'll understand it when, when Jesus comes back. So we sort of excuse those, you know, I don't know it, and I actually don't want to know it, you know? Because if I know, then I'll have to respond and have to learn more. I don't like reading books and all of that. It's too, I don't, my head hurts, you know? I don't want my head to hurt. I want to get along with everybody. I don't like all these debates. Jesus will fix everything. And Jesus says, the Messiah, the Christ, voila, I'm here. Right here. That's me. Right here. This is actually an amazing statement from our Lord. Here he plainly proclaims to be the Messiah and he does it in this this unique conversation, this unique way. And and, and there's more. Like a salesman, there's more. In the Greek it reads something like this. The one who speaks to you, I am. Does that ring any bells? Actually, it goes back all the way back to the burning bush, back to Exodus, where someone was shooting all these excuses before God as well. He was, you know, he was firing all these things, but finally Moses had to surrender. And this is exactly what happens here. And in witnessing, verses 27 to 30, our final point. And just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking to a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? And then leaving her, leaving her water jar, 
the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. The lights come on somewhere between verses 26 and 27. Remember how Jesus told her to go and get her husband? Well, she finally obeys Jesus' instruction to go and bring not only her de facto husband, but on the way she tells everybody else in the village as well. This woman understands very little of what we could call the the Christian faith. But the first thing she thinks about is telling others about it. This news is so special, it is so good. All she says is, he knows me. Good news is for sharing. Good news is not keeping it for yourself. Good news is not a personal matter. It's an interpersonal matter. It's about our relationship. It has to, we have to let people know about this. And her witnessing to her village is simply come and see. That's exactly what Philip said to Nathaniel in chapter 1 verse 46. Come and see. I think for all of us, we should be able to embrace this relational model of evangelism, particularly in the times in which we live. We're involved praying for a person. Even before we plant the seed, we're praying for an opportunity that God will open the way for an encounter, a a well type of encounter where we can discuss about spiritual matters. Maybe you just somewhere along the line who somebody else has already been preparing the soil. Somebody else has planted the seed and God is actually using you to present the gospel, the good news. But behind all of this, behind all of this is the living God who gives the living water for us to drink. And only once we drink of this living water will our thirst be satisfied. Only God can transform the human heart. Only God deals with the the biggest issues that we all face. Only God, only God, only God.